Well, good morning. Wonderful to be here again. Um, as Harvey said, my name is Roger Revel. Revel makes it sound more auspicious than it actually is. <laughs> Revel is how it, it's pronounced in the South. Maybe it was Revel way back when the Normans invaded England or something. Um, back in the period of time which we're going to be looking at today. Uh, just want to give you a heads up. We're going to be keeping a, bri- a brisk pace this morning. We've got some ground to cover, and as you know, I've got to zip out just around 10 or shortly after to get to St. Peter's for the service down there. But let's start with a prayer. Well, we thank you for uh, the legacy of, uh, of the gospel and the work of the Spirit uh, in all sorts of human cultures. Um, we call this church history. Uh, it's got lots that's instructive for us, both things that we should do and emulate and things that we should not do and not replicate. And so we pray that you give us discernment as we sift through the material today, give us a clear understanding of things, uh, sober judgment. Um, and Lord, may we find uh, may we find uh, good things for our own spirituality as we reflect critically this morning. Amen. Amen. So last winter, as some of you will remember, uh, I was here and I spoke about the Crusades. Uh, we took a little time to explore the Crusades. Uh, in that session, we gave our attention briefly and selectively to the chronology and general history of of the crusading events and what we had in mind specifically were the five crusades that were oriented towards Jerusalem and the Holy Land for those of you who know a bit more about wider crusading history you'll realize that there were other crusades that took place in Europe with uh, Christians ransacking other Christians Uh, but the, 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 uh, the focus of this talk is the crusades to the Holy Lands and these campaigns, as some of you may remember, took place respectively in 1095, 1099. The second was in 1147, the third in 1189, the fourth in 1202, and the fifth in 1213. Uh, now, the, the brief historical mapping that I provided was followed by a little inquest into the theological rationale for crusading. And in that discussion, I drew our attention to a series of primary texts uh, from the period that invited us to to understand the church's attitude and mindset with regard to crusading. And so we dipped into some of the work of Pope Urban II, who called the First Crusade. Uh, We did a selective survey of the writings of Gilbert of Nogent, and we also looked at some of the sermons of Bernard of Clairvaux, for example, who was a great preacher of crusading. And in all of that, we uh, hopefully gained some familiarity with why crusading was deemed, by and large, in that context, as a permissible and fitting activity for the Christian. Uh, We learned, for example, in this, that the cross in the hands of the crusaders became, quote, a sign of obedience through the physical sacrifice of martial combat and an icon of military victory through faith. We also discovered that crusading was dignified by the church as a holy vocation. Uh, In other words, crusading made it possible for lay people to undertake work that was recognized to be as pleasing to God as the work of being a monk or a priest. We saw that crusading plugged into the medieval penitential system. It was a form of pilgrimage, as it were, and a means therein to make amends for one's sin. And lastly, we acknowledged the link between crusading and the broader cultural norms of northern Europe at that time. These were norms of militarism and violence linked to Europe's anterior pagan cultures, the cultures that was there before the Christian missionary movements into that part of the world. And in light of that, we recognize that crusading provided a spiritually acceptable or more spiritually acceptable form of military engagement. Uh, So through the spirit of crusading, to quote one scholar, the warrior ethic of Europe got Christianized 
but the church also got militarized. Now, keeping all of this in mind, today we're going to revisit the medieval Christian crusading movement. And our aim is to move from description and understanding, which was kind of the focus of the first talk, to evaluation, interpretation. So how are we going to interpret and judge the Crusades? That's the concern of today's hour. And in speaking into these questions, I have two simple aims. Aim number one is to bring some further historical clarification on the inauguration of the Crusades. And here, with an eye to the historical circumstances in the background of the Crusades, I want to suggest that they are not, as has been often argued of late, they are not in the first place the result of raw aggression and proto-imperialism. If you go Google around, you'll find a lot of people there saying this these days. Moreover, the Crusades are not an incident. They are not an incident whereby northern European Christians, Latin Christians, uh, assaulted and disrupted an otherwise peaceful and enlightened and congenial Muslim uh, set of Muslim cultures, Muslim Arabic cultures. More accurately, the Crusades at their inauguration are responsive and defensive. They pushed back forces that can rightly be called expansionist and brutal. I'm going to demonstrate this for you shortly. This is all what comes clear when we look at the Crusades and evaluate them in light of prior events, the prior history to the Crusades. And then aim number two, which will stand alongside this first aim as a bit of an antithesis, is to proffer a theological critique of crusading. And here I want to make some theological judgments on the theological motivations that were at play in medieval crusading to the Holy Land. And so what I want to do here is take issue. I want to take issue. So while historical argumentation and a purely historical interpretation, um, a worldly point of view, you might say, can grant a certain legitimacy to crusading, when we judge the crusades uh, in light of the teaching of Scripture and what it says about Christian life and Christian spirituality, we inevitably have to call the whole enterprise into into question. And so that's where we're going to land today. We're going to land on that task. Got it? Okay, so let's start with the historical clarification of the Crusadings. We want to do some myth dispelling, dispel some misunderstanding and some misleading information that is very much extant right now. Let me begin with a statement here. Quote, the Crusades were not unprovoked. They were not the first round of European colonialism. They were not conducted for land, loot, or converts. The Crusaders were not barbarians who victimized cultivated Muslims. Many of us are familiar with the sentiment that present Muslim Arabic bitterness towards the so-called Christian West dates back to the Crusades. You hear that a lot today. The pro- some of the present problems go all the way back to the Crusades. And that accounts the, the Crusades were, quote, the first extremely bloody chapter in a long history, now seven or 800 years history, of the first brutal European colonialism. Okay. The Crusades were, in this point of view, quote, a terrible crime of Occidental greed and expansionism. Uh, and that type of rhetoric and that type of explanation has been around prior to the last 20 years in, in the midst of the war on terror and everything else that's going on. In 1999, the New York Times solemnly proposed that the Crusades were comparable to Hitler's atrocities or to the ethnic cleansing of Kosovo. Note well, such ill-advised judgments are hardly an anomaly in the New York Times. Uh, adding to such sentiments, people like Karen Armstrong, you may have heard heard of her, sort of a pseudo-public intellectual. Uh, she's definitely public. She's pseudo-intellectual, excuse me. Uh, Karen Armstrong, popular-level writer on lots of religious themes, sees the Crusades as betraying an inherent Christian leaning towards violence. She says they warrant contrition and apology. 
Armstrong has elsewhere asserted that the Crusades were, quote, our first colonies. That's what Armstrong is asserting. Uh, in other words, the Latin Christians, the knights, they came, they saw, they conquered. The victims, the Arab Muslims in those parts, were enlightened, peaceful Muslim people living in the Middle East. Now, these types of attitudes towards the Crusades, this type of interpretation, it has a somewhat impressive pedigree in the realm of modernity. You can find this type of thinking in the thought of Voltaire, Hume, Diderot, and most notably in the historian Edward Gibbon at Oxford, who wrote The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, these, these folks and others suggested that the true motiv motivation of medieval crusaders was, quote, the pursuit of mines of treasures, gold and diamonds, spices, and palaces of marble and jasper. That's Edward Gibbon. Following Gibbon, such an illustrious fellow, many other historians have depicted the Crusades as a means for Latin Christians to solve material problems, to pursue wealth. They were preoccupied with expanded markets rather than expanded faith. Now, the accrued summary of these historical interpretations of the Crusades can be put as follows, quote, During the Crusades to the Holy Land, expansionistic, imperialistic Christendom brutalized, looted, and colonized a tolerant and peaceful Islam, to quote one contemporary critic. Not so. Let me demonstrate. In support of my counter-thesis here, I want to make four, about four instructive, I think, historical observations which are going to function to challenge the narrative of the Crusades that I've just represented to you. Uh, a narrative that has become very common and is often uncritically accepted. So let's do our homework and, cr and critique the prejudice. Argument in the first. The Crusades uh, were precipitated by Islamic provocation. Okay. So this is, this is the first point in, in refuting the narrative that I've just outlined. This point is that the Crusades were precipitated by Islamic provocation. Specifically, they were precipitated by centuries, centuries of bloody attempts to colonize the Latin West by expansionistic Islamic forces. This came to a head in the 11th century when crusading itself to the Holy Land was galvanized by sudden Muslim attacks on Christian pilgrims visiting the Holy Land. Okay. In responding to those threats, Christian crusaders set out, and they did not set out to convert Muslims or to take lots of Muslim territory. Rather, they were laboring to rout a real and present threat. The threat began long before the 11th century. It, in fact, goes back to the 7th century. In that time, Islamic armies began to sweep over large portions of what was then Christian territory. Right? Sicily, Corsica, Cyprus, Rhodes, Crete, Malta, Sardinia. Right? Islamic forces came in and took all that territory. This expansionist movement, to, tie, to quote one historian, is actually is directly tied to Muhammad's last word to his followers, which are this, quote, I was ordered to, ordered to fight all men until they say there is no God but Allah. Okay? In this spirit, the prophet's heirs set out to, quote, conquer the world. Now, Muhammad was born in 570 A.D., and when he was born, Christendom, stretched from the Middle East all along North Africa, and it included much of Europe, as you know. Within 80 years of his death, and he died in 632 A.D., North Africa, most of the Middle East, Cyprus, and most of Spain were Islamic. Within 80 years of his death. Within another century, Sicily and southern Italy were added to that list. Okay. So what happened to all the Christians and Jews who had been living there? Right? right? How did this Muslim increase in gaining of territory transpire? 
Arab strength at this time was boosted as Islam united otherwise infuting Arab peoples. And out of that strength, the Muslim Arab peoples had the power to expand, and they did. Right? As one historian puts it, Muslims, quote, fought for their religion, the prospect of booty, and because their fellow tribesmen were doing it. Now, this expansion started with Syria, and then it encompassed Persia. Uh, in Syria, Muslim for- armies overcame the Byzantine forces, that's who was running Syria at that time, at the very famous battle, the Battle of Yarmouk. And that, in turn, left the Holy Land without Greek protection, without Byzantine protection. Okay, That's why in 638, Jerusalem surrendered to Muslim assailants. Okay. The marauders also attempted to take the capital of um, Constantinople in 672, about 30 or 40 years later. Constantinople at that time was the last dam to stem a rising tide of Muslim expansionism. Its fall, if it had fallen in the 7th century, would have meant the immediate Islamization of Europe. That's what would have happened, right? But owing to impressive fortifications and unmatched military technology, including Greek fire, which is something fun to Google, uh, the threat was neutralized, and the, the enemy outside the walls of Constantinople was turned back. But many of those former territories that had been part of Byzantium were lost. Elsewhere, the same conquesting trend continued until the Muslim invaders had taken North Africa and moved up into Spain, 711 A.D., Right? The Christians who were living there, Span- this, what we call Spain, was, was a loose Christian population there made up of, of Visigoth peoples who were living there at that time. They were broken. Their king's head, King Rodrigo, was sent, the head, not the body, was sent to the caliph in Damascus who had ordered the, the, the conquest there. And in the following seven years, Muslims took the rest of Spain, which they then called Al-Andalus. Al-Andalus. I think that's where the name for Andalus. Uh, Andorra comes from, actually, you know, the teeny country. Yeah. Uh, then the Muslims there were called Moors because they came from Morocco. And the, the local people, the Visigoths, called them Moors for that reason. So the Moors would have moved on up into Europe from that western end had they not been, of course, routed at the Battle of Poitiers, right, by Charles Martel, who repelled the armies of Abd al-Rahman. And Martel's grandson, of course, Charlemagne, would continue in that work. We know this story, right? So that's the first Second, Muslim antagonism towards the West that is linked to the medieval Crusades is really a new phenomenon that doesn't actually go back to the time of the Crusades. Karen Armstrong would suggest that it does. Quite frankly, she's wrong. Okay, it actually Muslim animosity, Arab Muslim animosity towards the West that talks about the Crusades as the basis. That's really a relatively new thing. In fact, it surfaces in about 1900. It's a little more than 100 years ago. Uh, And it's largely in reaction to the decline of the Ottoman Empire and the modern European colonization of the Near East. Modern European colonization. It was the last sultan of the Ottomans. He's pictured right there. Abdul Hamid II, he died in 1909, who first began to refer to the European Crusades that happened 500 years prior. Right? And that prompted the first Muslim history of the Crusades, which was published in 1899. Okay, so that's how the whole this narrative of crusading gets onto the into the mind and imagination of the people there. Now, uh, the book that was published in 1899 it links modern imperialism, the imperialism that was happening right then and there, British imperialism, French imperialism, and so forth. It links that to medieval crusading. It says there's a link between the two. 
And that theme, as you can imagine, was actively picked up by Muslim nationalist movements at that time, and it became fodder for the pan-Islamic movement. The rhetoric suggests that the events of modern imperialism paralleled the Crusades. And in that context, the Crusades were depicted as events whereby, quote, the savage West actually came in to conquer, but they ended up being benefiting by absorbing Islam's civilized values. So it was a very uh, propagandistic text. Uh, they also suggested that Islam uh, only suffered from the influence of the Latin West because what, could, what, what possible benefit could it obtain from contact with, quote, an inferior backward civilization. Very propagandistic text that was. Contemporary religious commentator Karen Armstrong has suggested that the Crusades, in light of all of this, are, quote, one of the first direct causes of the Middle East conflict today. Okay. Uh, now, that skewed appraisal has gained momentum, as historical research uh, indicates, with the founding of the State of Israel in the mid-20th century, again herein, anti-Crusader sentiments have grown because of perceptions about Israel's ties to the West. It's important to see, however, that these feelings and these attitudes are very much about modern events, recent events, rather than anything that actually occurred in the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries. Okay. In truth, Muslim, as Jonathan Riley Smith of Cambridge University notes, have not, quote, inherited from their medieval predecessors, bitter memories of the violence of the Crusaders. They did not really inherit that. That's a modern thing. Before the end of the 19th century, there was hardly any interest in the Crusades on the part of Muslim Arabic peoples. They were looked back upon with, quote, indifference and complacency. Right? The term for Crusades did not even exist in Arabic until Christian Arabs translated French histories into the mother tongue in the, in the modern era. Okay? Moreover, even at the time of the Crusades... Muslim historians, if you look at documents from that period written by Muslim chroniclers, they paid little attention to the Crusades. Many Arabs, moreover, dismissed the Crusades as being mere assaults on the the Turks, and they didn't like the Turks any more than the Christians did, right? So one Crusade-era historian, Ibn Zafir, opines that it was better that the Franks occupy the Kingdom of Jerusalem uh, because that prevented the spread of the influence of the Turks to other parts of the Middle East. So against Karen Armstrong, current Muslim memories and anger towards the Crusades are in fact a 20th century creation, late 19th century. Third counter-thesis. It's been said that the Crusaders were brutal barbarians who ransacked enlightened, peaceful, advanced, and tolerant Muslim civilizations. I think that's all those words that rolled right off the lips of Karen Armstrong. That's a heavily <clears throat> editorialized assessment, so we need to consider a few things here to refute that. How were the conquered... How were conquered peoples treated by their uh, Arab Islamic overlords during that period of expansion, right? On the one hand, the Quran does forbid forced conversion, yet many of the conquered peoples were free to choose conversion as an alternative to death or enslavement. (laughs) Sometimes Christians and Jews were given more accommodation, right? They weren't killed, but they were forbidden from reading scripture at church together or in their homes. They were given the status of dhimmis. You might know that word. Uh, it's like a lower status. It means that in the context of social life, you kind of o- occupy a place of humiliation and you have to pay higher taxes. Uh, in, some, in some cases, the worst of cases, Christian and Jewish leaders were simply slaughtered. That's what happened in Armenia with the nobles in 705 AD with the Muslim conquest at that time. Uh, it also happened to the Jews in Medina <clears throat> under Muhammad's own orders. 700 local Jewish males were forced to dig their own graves before being beheaded. 
To be sure, Christians and some of the Crusaders could be equally as oppressive. You'll find scandalous and appalling stories. The point is simply that both sides were brutal and intolerant. It's not enlightened, tolerant, and then brutal, uncivilized. That's not an act. That's not a fair rendering. What is the, what was the nature of the Islamic culture that the Crusades allegedly disrupted? Let me quote one historian. Quote, to the extent that Arab elites acquired a sophisticated culture, and there is evidence of sophistication at this time, they learned it from their subjected peoples. This is what the most definitive scholar in this area has argued, right? Their culture, in fact, the, the, the great triumphs of Arab culture, and I guess we'd call the, what we might call the early Dark Ages, um, their culture was, in fact, the great features of the culture were inheritance from Persia, from Greece, and even India, right? Uh, so the, in the territories that the, the Muslim Arab conquerors invaded in the 7th century onwards, learning, the great learning of these cultures was primarily sustained by the Dhimmi population under the Arab regimes, right? And so the, and the, the interesting thing is that if, if the, the historians look at the, assimil, the gradual assimilation of the Dhimmi population, the people who were conquered, right? As those populations began to really assimilate and become truly Islamic, uh, the sophisticated elements of the culture begin to disappear. Isn't that interesting? I know that it's not PC to say, but it's Donald Hill who says it. <laughs> Donald Hill wrote a book celebrating the enormous contribution that Arabs have made to science and engineering, but he notes that little of that contribution can actually be traced, quote, traced to Arab origin. Most of it, he admits, originated with conquered populations. So an example, let me give you a few examples. Let me give you some examples instead of just making that claim. That's a very controversial claim. Uh, in Avicenna, one of the most <clears throat> celebrated Muslim philosophers and scientists of the time, uh, his, name, his name was Avicenna. He was actually Persian. And if you know anything about Persian culture, it's a culture with great achievement. Uh, the so-called Arabic numerals, some of you will know this, are not actually Arabic. They come from India. Those are the numerals that we use. Uh, the advanced medicine of Arab culture, which has been acclaimed by many historians, is in fact has its roots in Nestorian Christian culture. And the leading Muslim and Arab physicians at that time were trained at the monumental Nestorian Medical Center in Nisiba, Syria. Okay. So the wishful assessment of a sophisticated, enlightened Arab culture ruined by the Crusaders is further called into question by all of this. And to this we might add... Uh, a little bit of attention to how Arab Muslim uh, conquerors treated some of the intellectual resources in the lands which were invaded from the 7th century onward, specifically libraries. And they, they did obtain a lot of libraries when they took those territories from uh, from Byzantium, uh, from the, the Byzantine Empire. So when Alexandria, Egypt was taken, for example, everybody knows about the great library in Alexandria, right? They, they came, they found the, the library there, they wrote a letter to Caliph Umar. They said, what do we do with this library and all these books? And this is what he wrote back, translated, of course. If what is written in its books agrees with the Quran, then those books aren't needed because it's already in the Quran. And if it disagrees with what's in the Quran, then they're not desired. So destroy all of them. And that is precisely what they did. The scrolls in that library became kindling for the city's 4,000 bathhouses, and it took six months to burn through them. These illustrations are not selective. They're representative. There are, of course, certain exceptions. 
and those who write the counter-narrative really like to hone in on the exceptions. Fourth, the Crusades are not a form of proto-imperialism, as has has often been suggested these days. They were not undertaken by the younger sons of uh, Frankish and Saxon and Norman nobility, younger sons who wanted to go out for themselves and secure independent wealth and honor and title and for their families through territorial conquest. That's how it's been rendered. In truth, crusading was a very expensive business, very, very expensive. It was undertaken at great personal cost, and it came with very modest financial rewards, uh, and it required enormous subsidy. So let's look briefly, let's pause here to look at the, the closely at the cost of participating in crusading, right? A knight, if he was to go crusading, needed armor, arms, and at least one war horse, prefer, preferably two or three, though. At least one, preferably two or three. And then you need a palfrey, which is a riding horse, or that, that you ride to the battle, but not in the battle. And then you also needed some mules to carry the luggage, and then, of course, there were servants that required. Now, a war horse cost about 10 pounds at that time. That was equivalent to two years' salary for a sea captain in the period. So very expensive. Servants, right? Uh, and then in addition to the direct cost of crusading, there was the cost of providing with your for your family in your absence, right? The cumulative result, crusading typically a crusader... The leader of a crusading band typically needed to raise four to five times their annual income before they could embark. Very expensive. That is why, for example, Robert, Duke of Normandy, mortgaged his entire duchy to his brother, William II of England, right, in order to fund a venture to the Holy Land in 1096. So, if you're interested in how the mortgaging worked, you can read about the Vifage systems, which is the interesting and creative way that medieval Christians got around interest but still kind of had interest. <laughs> so, yeah. The cost of, is even higher when you account for loss of life, right? If, if the crusader died, then what typically happened is the, the properties that had been mortgaged in the Vifage system, they were foreclosed, and the family would be left in financial destitution. Believe me, it would have been much cheaper to keep those younger sons at home than to send them off to the Holy Land. So crusading is not an imperialistic activity, right? It drained rather than generated revenue. Right, and everybody knows that imperialism is about making money, not losing money. Um, with the successes in the Holy Land and the establishment of the uh, of the little uh, Crusader kingdoms, Odessa, Antioch, Tripoli, and Jerusalem, the cost of crusading only increased. So they got there, they paid all the money to get there, and then they had to set up permanent garrisons to secure the Holy Land the, for the, really just the area where the the sites were, the pilgrimage sites. Now, for those who manned these little crusader states, there was no compelling financial reason to remain in Palestine. In fact, the opposite was true. The knights uh, who were there working, they were often paid poorly and lately, if at all. Uh, The motives of these people, they were not financial. These weren't avaricious, greedy people. They were, this was, it was an ideological motive. It was a spiritual motive, right? And that's why the kingdoms... Uh, some revenue came from taxing trade caravans that moved through the area, but a lot of support came from subsidies from the kingdoms back in Europe. Right? To quote one scholar, the Crusader kingdoms would only quote be sustained in Christian hand by subsidies sent from Europe. Right? It's like building a, an outpost on Antarctica. It's not going to be self-sustaining, probably. You got to send money to keep the place open. And that is the origin of the crusader taxes that were eventually created and imposed upon the populations in the home countries. Not very popular, as you can imagine. We'll get to that in a moment. So if you want to understand the motive for crusading, you've got to look elsewhere. Uh, 
one little comparative illustration really drives this home point quite strongly. In 1063, Pope Alexander II proposed a crusade to drive out the remaining infidel Muslims from Spain, the Moorish peoples, right? Now, unlike the Holy Land, unlike Jerusalem, Moorish Spain was extremely wealthy and it had lots of fertile land, right? So that's a good, if you want to make money, go on that crusade. No one went. No one went. No one signed up. So it never happened, right? 30 years later, when he called for, uh, the next pope called for a crusade to the Holy Land, everybody signed up. And there was nothing to really gain materially. Right? Land and loot were not the motives. This is not an imperialistic type activity at all. Another anecdote worth mentioning, mentioning on, along these lines involves Godfrey of Bouillon. Uh, yeah, you might know he was one of the first, in the first wave of crusaders. Uh, and he was the first crusader king of Jerusalem. Uh, they got there, they secured the city back for pilgrims, and someone said, well, we should make Godfrey king because he was a very uh, uh, gallant, uh, courageous uh, knight and leader. But he refused. He said he's not going to wear this crown of gold and set up a little kingdom for himself there where his the king that he went to serve wore a crown of thorns. So Godfrey famously refused to accept the crown of gold, right? It, which tells you something about the motives and the intentions. He just he said, I'll, you can, if you want to give me a title, call me the Defender of the Holy Sepulchre. That was the title he accepted. <clears throat> so now in all of this, we get a, a better, I think, a better informed sense of what the, why they were launched, how to interpret them. Uh, we get familiarity with the backstory. We've dispelled certain false motives. And so I want to repeat the statement I made at the beginning. The Crusades were not unprovoked. They were not the first round of European colonialism. They were not conducted for land, loot, and converts. And the Crusaders were not barbarians who victimized the cultivated Muslims. Right. So from a pure hist- worldly historical angle, there, you can see there might actually be a reasonable basis for the Crusades. Right, This isn't about raw antagonism or expansionism. It's not about empire building. It's not about avarice or acquisitiveness. It's not certainly not about you know, kind of facilitating dominating conversions. Right? Nonetheless, as Christians, I think we still can take a critical view of these medieval events. Right? Um, but we, we can take that critical view without redacting history, right? without trying to, to spin the story so that it, it makes the crusade, you know, makes them look like something they weren't. There's a different way to do it. So this is what I want to do now in closing. We're going to shift gears here and we'll do a theological evaluation of crusading, kind of probe more deeply into the spiritual rationale animating the crusader spirit. I talked a little bit about this in talk number one, so we're going to revisit, but I'm going to offer some critique in this. So as I take up the mantle of the naysayer, I need to note that crusading in its period was hardly without opposition. We're not the first people to have a problem with crusading, right? The opposition, however, was not always sustained by the highest of motives, spiritually speaking, right? In the actual situation, the greatest outcry against crusading was spurred by their adverse economic repercussions. It always comes back to taxes, doesn't it? Always comes back to taxes. As kings got involved with crusading, taxes increased. Because when a king goes off, right, he can raise a lot of revenue really quickly, more than just a knight or another sort of lower lord, right? And that is, in fact, what happened. The first ever income tax implemented, as opposed to property taxes, was the norm then. The first ever income tax was a, a tax to fund crusading, right? The bane of our existence, you know, in several senses, crusades and income tax, right? So, 
consider the Saladin tithe of 1188. That was entered, instituted in France and England for the Third Crusade. Uh, in England, Henry II set up this tithe, which suggests that it's voluntary. It was not, in fact, voluntary. Uh, as a 10% levy on all revenues and movable properties by everyone who didn't go. So the people who didn't go had to pay for the people who did go. Uh, following suit, in 1199, Pope Innocent III imposed a similar tax, 2.5%, on all clergy incomes, taxing uh, priests and monks. And, and in response to that, there was open rebellion and non-payment. Um, a new ceiling was reached some 50 years later in 1247 when St. Louis spent 1.5 livre on crusading. That is, That was more than six times his annual royal revenue. Right? And who do you think paid for that? Right? So these taxes, they hit everybody. Monasteries, priests, mer- merchants, you know. Grumbling ensued and, and so, uh, sort of a, a medieval version of the anti-war movement surfaced as a result of that. That was the greatest source of opposition to the crusading and probably one of the decisive factors in the fizzling out of crusading after the fifth. Now, in addition to those economic motives, there were also those from the beginning who, who brought theological condemnation to crusading, right? Uh, and, and their critiques were linked to the, the deeper spiritual forces at play in the crusading mindset. And so I want to build on their legacy in closing now. And there are two matters, I think, that warrant particular attention as we bring a theological critique on crusading. Number one, we need to look at the <clears throat> medieval penitential system and how it connected with crusading. And then number two, we need to look at what I want to call the relic ethos of medieval Christianity. And I think these two factors, as they combine, provide uh, an essential, the essential spiritual animating force for the Crusades. And because we have to take issue with those, we necessarily have to take issue with crusading. Uh, so let's treat these two subjects here. First, the medieval penitential system. Prior to the Protestant Reformation, Christianity was dominated by what you might call the what we've just called the penitential system, right? This this has been called the generic cause for crusading, right? The practice of making pilgrimage to a place like Jerusalem dovetailed with the penitential system. Now, what's a pilgrimage? A pilgrimage can be defined, as according to one scholar, as, quote, a journey undertaken from religious motives to a sacred place. Okay? In medieval context, the religious motive was most commonly associated with atonement, obtaining forgiveness of sins. And this specifically applied to sins committed after your baptism, right? The forgiveness in turn was linked with the performance of certain spiritual activities. This is called satisfaction. Okay, this is this is these are distinctions from medieval scholastic theology, right? Satisfaction, the whole idea of satisfaction represents the fact that human ta- sins can entail temporal punishment, punishment here and now, certain types of um, uh, uh, punitive measures, uh, purpose to bring some sort of restoration. It can entail, satisfaction can entail temporal punishment, even if the person doing it has, is able to avoid eternal punishment. So they kind of make that distinction there. And the temporal punishment, the satisfaction for sins, was seen to have a cleansing, purifying effect on people. It was designed, satisfactionary activity was designed to erode unhealthy attachments which stand behind any given sin. There's actually some good insight on the way sin works here, right? Now, practically speaking, making a pilgrimage was a common form of satisfaction at this time, right? Within the medieval sacrament of penance, 
right? And so confessors, the people that heard the sins confessed, when they would then issue a requirement to make satisfaction, right? They, it's absolution, and then you do some satisfaction, you get absolution, right? They would often direct the person confessing to, to make a pilgrimage. That was their act of satisfaction and penance. So when Count Terry of Trier murdered his archbishop in 1059, what did his confessor, what, did, what satisfaction requirement did his confessor give him? He said, go to Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem. Right? The knightly class of Europe uh, featured quite prominently in this penitential <clears throat> pilgrimage arrangement because they were a very violent, sinful, but also a very religious bunch. In the 10th century, the practitioners of Cluniac monasticism had developed an elaborate system of hostels allowing people to visit the Holy Land, right? So spiritual practice is in place, and then the, the market kind of adapts to, to facilitate the spiritual practice. We'll get you to the Holy Land. <clears throat> so, of course, all this infrastructure is in place. There's, there's the spirituality uh, beneath it. And then when the destination gets imperiled, the most common destination for a for a satisfactional penitential act to the Holy Land that involved pilgrimage, right? When it gets imperiled because uh, Jerusalem is a place you can't visit anymore, spiritual alarm bells went off, right? And so the Crusaders had to march out there to ensure that this very important means of expiation was not short-circuited. That's how it fits into the system. There's a problem there, as you can as you can see. I can put it as follows. The Crusaders were unconscionable because the output, because what they did was the output of a theologically flawed and skewed and anti-biblical perspective on atonement and forgiveness. Right? Now, the provenance of that misunderstanding of, you know, forgiveness and the whole penitential system, I think its, pro- its provenance is lexical. Right? Uh until the time of Erasmus, and you may know a bit about this story, there existed certain common misrenderings of certain New Testament passage. So let me give you a few examples. Acts 2. But Peter said to them, do penance and be baptized. Uh, Acts 17. And God indeed, having worked at the times of, of this ignorance, now declares to all men that they should everywhere do penance. And uh, also another example from Matthew 3. And in those days cometh John the Baptist preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now what actually, what's the word that's supposed to be there? But it was do do penance. Why? What's going on there, right? Now that's the English translation I just read you, but it's from the Latin Vulgate. It's from the Latin Vulgate. And that's the source of the blunder. The Greek is quite different, as Erasmus began to discover, and Martin Luther himself recognized in a very profound way. Right, And so we begin to see that the biblical basis for this long-standing Catholic sacrament of penance and the element of satisfaction that was part of it is being called into question. Right, There was a mistranslation. That is especially relevant with what, to what we're talking about right now. That's, where, that's why, for example, in our own communion liturgy, we say that Christ made by his death on a cross, quote, a full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. You understand? This is the root that stands behind the penitential pilgrimage system of the medieval church. 
and it is the compromise doctrine that fertilized the crusading impulse. Okay? And I think this discernment makes it possible for us to impeach the Crusades, which is no less than what certain medieval detractors attempted to do, challenging the Crusades by indicting the conceptions of forgiveness of sin that were at play therein. There were people at the time who were doing this. They were just minority voices. Right? You get that, for example, in a report by a guy called Humbert of Romans, general master of the Dominicans, who gave a, an account of all this at the Council of Lyon in 1274. Let's turn to the second uh, the second theological issue, the medieval relic ethos. The theological rationale for crusading is also tied to what I call the relic ethos of medieval Christendom, right? It is not a stretch to say that the Holy Land fits very neatly into this system, that the whole territory is one enormous relic, right? Right. And the desire to protect that relic has been called, quote, the specific reason for the crusade. So the pilgrimage penitential system is kind of the generic reason. The desire to protect this relic is the specific reason, right? Now, the relic ethos in the Latin West revolved around a pronounced interest in objects and places associated with Christianity, Christian history, Christian personalities, and and events in the gospel, right? And that also stands at the base of the pilgrimage culture, right? So consider this... Uh, telling reflection by Stephen I of Nablon, medieval, writing about uh, pilgrimage. This is what he says, quote, Considering how many are my sins and the love, clemency, and mercy of our Lord Jesus, because when he was rich became poor for our sake, I have determined to repay him in some measure for everything he has given me freely, and so I have decided to go to Jerusalem, where God was seen as a man and spoke with men and to adore the place where his feet trod. Holy Land is a relic. Now, the establishment of the Holy Land as one colossal reliquary, which is a place where relics are kept, the whole thing is a giant reliquary, that seeing the Holy Land like that, that actually dates, what's the origin of that? That goes back to Empress Helena, mother of Constantine. She could go to the most boring place and turn it into a sensational event. That was her spiritual gift. Now, she went on a sightseeing tour there. Uh, and prior to that tour, there is little evidence of Christian interest or fixation on the Holy Land, especially on the part of the West, right? Western pilgrims to the Holy Land, tiny stream. With Helena's trip, this changed, right? On her personal tour, she did a lot of research and tapped into local traditions linked with Jesus. And so she's the one that identified the site of Christ's tomb. Right under the Temple of Venus that Hadrian had built. That's the Holy Sepulchre today, right? Constantine, her son, then built a church on top of it at her request. In 333, just as the church that he built on top of the Holy Sepulchre was being finished, the first recorded Western pilgrim arrived from France. Right, And this guy kept an extended itinerary, which has survived. Okay? In 385, St. Jerome took a group did some sightseeing, but despite the fact that he was there with his group, he actually didn't think that doing pilgrimage was really that important in Christian spirituality. And the opinion of Jerome there, this is important to note, is an opinion that was shared by many of the early church fathers, right, who actually condemned and sometimes ridiculed the practice of doing pilgrimage. People like Augustine, St. John of Chrysostom, and Gregory of Nyssa. The public, however, paid little attention. Things accelerated in the 5th and 6th century with the Emperor Justinian, 
right? We did a lot of work to enhance Jerusalem and make it a wonderful... He was kind of a little bit like Herod the Great. Let's turn this place into the world's best pilgrimage center. Build a giant. That's what Justinian did, right? Now, that began to change in the 7th century when Jerusalem, as I said earlier, 638, surrendered to the Muslim army, right? And even while there were disruptions, pilgrimage still continued and became a very popular activity, and it was satiated. The, imp- the impulse to do a pilgrimage was satiated whenever it was politically feasible. Okay? And eventually, pilgrimage worked its way right into the heart of the Latin penitential system. Okay? So here's the critique here, right? Again, I'm just building on earlier uh, critical attitudes by Christians like some of the patristic fathers, right? What's the problem with with this whole relic culture and doing pilgrimage and all that? I think it contradicts one of the key New Testament shifts with regard to, to place, right? Um, and this shift is something that's very important in what God himself was doing as he changed the nature of his people through the work of the Messiah, In a word, involvement in God's people, true spirituality, according to the New Testament, is no longer tied to a particular geographic place or a building like the temple. Right? That's evidenced in a variety of ways in the scriptures, right? First, Jesus, when he talks about the destruction of the temple, which is a sign of new times, new times, right? He's he's not just talking about time in the chronos sense there, like this is going to happen next year. He's talking about the word times is kairos. It's a new spiritual era. And things are going to be different in this new era. Another example, right? Uh, same theology, very clear in First and Second Corinthians, chapter six of both books. Right? Believers are the new temple. Right? There's not a place you go to. Right? We are temples of the living God. This is fulfillment of what Jesus says in John fourteen sixteen. My Father and I will make our home in you. Right? We don't make a house for God anymore. You don't want to fix all certain places where you have to go there to be with God. Third. Jerusalem's treatment in the New Testament, those of you who are kind of well-versed in the New Testament scriptures will have discerned this, no doubt. It, the, Jerusalem moves away from being a historical referent to something that is more of an eschatological image. Okay, So it's when Jerusalem is used in the New Testament, it's not always just referring to a city and Palestine. It starts to refer to, it's like a picture of, of life in the age to come. Does that make sense? So, the, so, and that means that the significance of the historical earthy city is being sort of downgraded, and Jerusalem is taken, uh, you know, as as an image for for new life and full redemption and restoration. The city of Zion. Uh, that's a, and that I think reflects the change that God is Himself orchestrating between Judaism and Christianity. Moving Christianity as a global, multi-ethnic faith that's not linked to a particular place or a particular people, for that matter, right? Now, all this means that to be connected and close to God and to be involved in all the benefits of connection with God, that can happen wherever you are. It can happen wherever you are. Now, to be sure, Holy Land visits, you know, they still have some benefit uh, because they support the historical nature of Christianity, right? God did become man. He lived in this place, right? Yet that benefit, as it was expressed in the context of medieval Christianity, seems to have morphed into something rather superstitious. And the result was a fixation on Palestine that afforded it the spiritual status that is really not more to how it's treated in Scripture. In a a perspective on the Holy Land that is in fact rejected by the church fathers and critiqued by the patristic leaders. And so in this sense, the destruction of the temple and the dispersion of the church, book of Acts, 
These are events that recoil against the pilgrimage culture that stood behind the Crusades. Right? And so to critique that theology of place is necessarily to call crusading into question. Right? It's the, it's the logical implication. It, Israel is not to be to Christians what Mecca is to Muslims. That's the point. Right? Were the Crusades an attempt to make it something like that? Reflecting the spirituality of the time, right? Is crusading, therefore, defending a form of spirituality that the Bible, the New Testament itself, rejects? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. In Christ, God seems to have changed the game. And so this, the older spiritual sensibilities of Judaism and its fixation on Jerusalem and the temple, they get sublimated to the long-awaited outworking of the covenant. Right? So to continue to cling to those older sensibilities, that older form of spirituality, and not to embrace the new one, is to be out of sync with God's own purposes and the redemption of the world. And I think, in a sense, crusading is an example of being out of sync. All right. That's all I've got for today. We have a few minutes for questions. If you want to read further, I've put a few recommended resources here. Yes, sir. We're more an individual good question I don't know the answer I don't know if I can answer that without uh, doing some further thought on it yeah, yeah. yes ma'am um, first one is a comment I can totally agree with what you said about Jerusalem being a relic we were in Jerusalem um, about a year and a half ago it is a relic yeah. It is real. I mean, my mother always wished she could go to Jerusalem. I'm so glad she never got the chance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But my question is, I noticed the first title um, is Fighting for Christendom. And when you uh, critique the Crusades from a theological perspective, do you have anything to say on that question? Do we need to fight for Christendom? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I mean, the Crusades are very much... a, a an out a byproduct of the Christendom mentality. And there was really nothing else on offer, you have to realize that people couldn't even imagine another world, right? Because this was before the dawn of secularism. Um, today, no, I think I think Christendom is whether we grieve it or not, it is a thing of the past. Is it something that we should seek to reestablish? I don't think so. Um, my leanings are a little bit more with our Anabaptist brothers and sisters on this question. Uh, which is that, uh, you know, the we are we are to to be the people of God in places where we don't necessarily uh, enjoy sort of influence and power at the level of dominant culture and the political institutions therein. Yeah. So, I, and Christendom was, in a sense, it was it was a little bit a loose analogy to what Israel was in the Old Testament before the exile. I think our paradigm is if we want to think about existence as the people of God now what that looks like kind of an area of what we might call political theology I think we do better to go to the book of Daniel yeah so yes sir what extent is intellect in the life of the church I mean as a collective to what extent is intellectual dishonesty about the past uh, a concern to what extent is it sinful in fact to what extent uh, uh, should we be concerned? A great American novelist, I won't mention her name, <laughs> says, I think with great insight, one of her greatest rhetorical statements is, the past is a guilty thing. Mm. And she's saying that modernity lives off of a denigration of the past for its own 
ideological purposes. Mm-hmm. Could you just comment on that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're, you know, we are, uh, even, you know, even a lot of very uh, celebrated historians and scholars still carry certain prejudices and, and you know, and biases in their work. Um I mean, the idea of peer review is to try to filter that out a little bit. I think it's it's also co- common just amongst Christians, you know, like if someone like Karen Armstrong mistells the story of the Crusades, and I'm not saying this, the account I, I, you know, offered is, is sort of the, the perfect objective account, right? But I am taking her to task and others like her on a few things. If she does that, then there's a lot of Christians who do the same thing just with a different bent. And I, And I think actually I would say part of discipleship and and uh, Christian integrity is to be truth tellers uh, even when the truth is inconvenient to us or even when it works against vested interest and I believe that's actually a very authentic Protestant com- uh, conviction right because you know what was the, uh, the uh, Martin Luther nailed the theses to the door of the church what was number one what was the, what was thesis theses number one on the list of 95. Repentance is it? Yeah, go ahead. Well, that was part. Yeah, that that was part. But we'll let Dr. Packer answer. Well, when thesis number one was when uh, Jesus called on people to repent, uh, he was calling for uh, a change of heart. Let me say. Rather than any any form of penance, I can't remember the exact words, but that's mm-hmm. the substance. Yes, and and the one of the other ideas that's present in that is that repentance is it's a norm for Christian life. It's not something you do once. Did that? Okay, right? It's a norm. In fact, it's not even a weekly norm, right? It's like well, if you're like. If you're like my wife, it's an hourly norm. Oh. Just kidding. <laughs> she would say that about me. <laughs> it's a minutely norm for me. It's a minutely norm, right? So we don't, I mean, to be to be people of spiritual integrity, right, means that we don't, you know, if, if we're distorting things, right, for best interest, we're actually betraying our fundamental convictions, right? And I think beneath all of that is, uh, you know, if you dig deep enough, you probably run, in, run into the old issue of, um you know, not really relying on God as the source of your salvation, right? So you're having to tell history in a certain way or talk about the church in a certain way, you know, to kind of achieve something. Why are you trying to achieve that? We can't achieve that, right? I mean, we all make the general confession every Sunday, but I'm not sure how many people actually believe it. I have sinned in thought and word and deed, you know, we kind of say it, right? But if it's true, then we should expect repentance to be the norm. And that, of course, that that practice touches on every area of life, including the life of the mind. The, the life of the the work of historiography, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Um, do you know how we we looked at the theological assessment of the crusade from our point of view? But how would you know? How would the uh, actually? Yeah. How would the um, Roman Catholics of today, mm-hmm. the official Catholic doctrine? The, 
That's a great question, uh, and I would like to go explore it. Yeah, yeah, because the this, the the sacrament and the understanding of what's involved in the sacrament of penance, right, which we've talked about a good amount, it is still in place there, right? Now, I imagine they, they might say that um, that was a satisfaction is still a good thing. That was a warped expression of satisfaction, right? So, uh, and they would maybe appeal to the the principle: the abuse of the thing doesn't negate the thing of its the, itself. Whereas Protestants would say there's a DNA problem there, right? It's a DNA problem. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for uh, tracing back the relic uh, possibilities there, because you know it got entirely out of hand in Europe. Everybody wanted a relic. I mean, a terrific impetus to mm-hmm. the tourist industry, you know. But also, you know, I found people actually adoring pieces of the true cross. And there are enough of those around to create a forest of our own. Um, in Spain, I mean, well, I'm talking about today, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. taking school children into a cathedral to see these things. Now, this whole emphasis on there is some blessing in this particular little mm-hmm. thing. And everybody, every cathedral in Europe mm-hmm. wanted a relic to uh, bring people to them and to sort of increase the revenue, mm-hmm. among other things. But... Um, the church seemed to be condoning this. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just about saving Jerusalem or reclaiming Jerusalem or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was. Um, it had its impact on the whole of Europe, and mm-hmm. I would say quite possibly places that were colonized by Europe as well. Mm-hmm. The other thing that that um, I wondered if you found um, how it started. The idea of uh, forgiving sins that you haven't committed yet. Mm-hmm. And certainly the Crusaders did experience that. It wasn't mm-hmm. just your past sins will be forgiven, but when you go to Jerusalem, the things that you may have to mm-hmm. do to guard the faith will also be mm-hmm. forgiven. That's right. I mean, that's um, where does that come from? Yeah, it's kind of a license. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. Well, the indulgences did the same thing. Yeah. But, you know, quite a that's long right. time after. Yeah. The issue with with relics and the relic culture, whether it's applied to the Holy Land as a whole or to the wood of the cross. I think Calvin said there was enough. Uh, there's enough cross wood in medieval Europe at his time to for like several hundred crosses, maybe or something. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody wasn't telling the truth. <laughs> you know. Um, if you go to the, the biblical basis, there is you know there is a kind of a loose biblical basis. You go to the Book of Acts. I think it's chapter 17. Uh, Paul leaves a little handkerchief or something, right? And there's a miracle associated with that object. Um, and so, you know, there, that's like the, but the relic culture that developed, boy, that was a, that was a lot to hang on that little hook. Yeah. I think the hook kind of went like that after a while, you know? Um, and that's, that's the issue, right? It's something that's present in scripture, but it's, it's, it's quite minor. It's, you know, it's just almost an oblique reference yet. It becomes the basis for something that kind of is a major pillar of medieval spiritual. And then things in the scriptures, which are much more major and significant kind of get minimized. Yeah. So things are out of proportion and out of balance, and that's often that's often how these types of problems arise, right? You can technically find a biblical basis, you know, but there's one story like that, and so why is everybody fixated on that? And you know, and you think, you know, to encounter God, I have got to go to Jerusalem, or I've got to go look at the Shroud of Turin, or whatever. I think C.S. Lewis got it right in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. Next, to, you know, he says, next to the Blessed Sacrament, the most holy thing you'll ever encounter is your neighbor especially a neighbor that's filled with the Holy Spirit. So why do you got to go to Jerusalem? Why don't you just go to your neighbor? 
right? You know. Jason's point. Uh, uh, I really. Uh, but this you must come back. I know you've got to run now. Uh, you must come back and, 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 and go further in it. A great Catholic historian, Brad Gregory, who's lectured at Regent, and he's at Notre yeah. Dame. He says rather provocatively, but I think very insightfully, that our Christian ancestors, if they could see us, mm-hmm. medieval and even, I think, Reformation Christians, 17th mm-hmm. century Christians, the thing they would despise about us the most would be our tolerance, he says. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our tolerance is really a betrayal. Mm-hmm. We're tolerant because we don't care. That's right. mm-hmm. These medieval people, they... Oh, they cared so crazily, didn't mm-hmm. they? Mm-hmm. But maybe their distorted caring puts us to shame in some sense. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I appreciate the balance that you've mm-hmm. uh, that you've brought to this today. You've got to go, don't you? I've, I've got to I've go. Got, I've got ten oh three. Is that ten good for you? Yeah, we'll do one more. This is an easy one. Just two or three sentences. The scope and synthesis of what you have done today is exceptional for Ordnance Exchange. Wow, thank you. It's a labor of love. <laughs> this, is, this is more than a regent paper. This is almost a, a thesis or something, or a book. Where is this coming from? Um, a lot of these sources, plus some others. Um, but... Are you doing oh. more than two lectures? They're, they're oh, I really, I'm just very interested in the Crusades. Okay. Yeah, I'm just very interested. Yeah, and we have a guy at the church, you you might, his, I don't think his family goes to this church. He's a guy at our church, he's a lawyer in town. But before he was a lawyer, he did his degree, a master's degree at NYU in medieval philosophy. Yeah, but he wasn't really interested in philosophy, and so ended up studying the Crusades instead. So I've had a number of conversations with him, and he's actually translated a lot of the medieval French texts. Um, and so we've been talking for about a year, and uh, um, we've collaborated on a number of things. So and it's kind of spurred a, I've discovered a new interest, you know, in the Crusades. Um, but also just the Crusades is just one entry point into medieval spirituality and understanding Christian identity. Christian belief, you know, in, in a pre-enlightenment context as a way of getting a better sense of what's distinct, unique, gainful, and sometimes ridiculous in our own context. But you have to you have to go into a different world almost. And this is a different world, right? It's The gap here is almost as big as the gap between us and, like, first century Palestine, who in certain ways the gap's less there because our civilization is quite a lot like Roman civilization. And there are many parallels, right? So... Anyway. So you're you're not out for a credential. You are working from interest. I thought. Yeah, yeah, it's from interest. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah.